find ourselves back in John uh, chapter 12. I'm going to read uh, verses 12 to 19. And um, I'm going to ask us just out of reverence for God's word that we stand together. And uh, we don't really have a formal liturgy uh, at our church. But in a number of churches, out of respect for God's word, the, the whole congregation stands as it's being read. And then after the reading, the reader says, this is God's word. And the people say, thanks be to God. So that's what we'll do uh, here this morning. So I'm going to read the passage. I'll say my part. This is God's word. You say your part. Thanks be to God. John 12, verses 12 to 19. The next day... The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word. Amen. You can go ahead and take your seats. I had mentioned earlier as we were studying through the Gospel of John, John wasn't a big fan of, of repetition. He didn't like to sort of retell the same stories. By the time John wrote his gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already written their gospels. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke repeat a lot of the same material. That's why they're called the synoptic gospels, because they synthesize with one another. But John, on the other hand, took things in a totally different angle. He doesn't even mention Christ's birth or Bethlehem or any of that like, like, like Matthew and Luke do. And, and, there's not a single parable in the whole Gospel of John. Meanwhile, Matthew and Luke are replete with, with parables. John took a totally different approach to retelling the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And only a couple of times does he repeat a story that the other Gospel writers wrote. The feeding of the 5,000 was a big deal. When Mary anointed Jesus' feet to declare that he was king, but also simultaneously prepare him for his burial. The, those were the only other two times where the same story gets recorded in the Gospel of John. This story, John 12, is another one of those situations where John sees this moment as so vitally important that he chooses to retell it. And we're going to see here three things kind of taking place. You can see them in your notes. We've got, we've got the welcome, the witnesses, and the world. We're going to begin right now with the welcome. The welcome states that Jesus is king. Jesus is the king. It says in verse 12, the next day, this is the day after that dinner party at the house of Simon the leper when Mary anointed Jesus' feet with that expensive Himalayan nard perfume. 
This is the next day. The day before was six days until the Passover. So now we are five days before the Passover. It says the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Jesus was in Bethany, a couple miles outside of town. And word began to spread that he was coming to Jerusalem. And then it says in verse 13 that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. This is the story that we often read on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, five days before Passover, when the city of Jerusalem erupted in praise with this massive parade and they held palm branches. Palm branches were a a sign of national pride for the nation of Israel. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were sort of this rotating regime of rulers that were in control of Jerusalem and Judea, that whole region. Sometimes the Egyptians were in charge, sometimes the Seleucids, sometimes the Syrians. And there's this family called the Maccabees family. And on a number of occasions, when when they were being oppressed by these foreign overlords, the the Maccabees would sort of rise up and kick them out. And on a number of those occasions, when they would come back after winning a, a small but important victory, the people would wave palm branches. That's recorded in, in history. It, it was a sign of national unity. It would be sort of like waving a We the North flag, or now, now it's She the North, right? It's not just about basketball, it's about tennis and it's hockey next. But we would wave a maple leaf, and I'm not talking about a blue maple leaf. I'm talking about a red, stick with me, leaf fans, okay. It's a sign of our nation. And so they are waving palm branches. Palm branches were also associated with peace. And that Jerusalem is the city of peace. Salem means peace. Jerusalem, it's it's the city of, of peace. And so they're, they're, they're recognizing that this is a national hero that is coming in the parade. And he has come to bring peace. And they're not just holding things with their hands. They're singing things with their mouth. It says that they are crying out, Hosanna! Now, Hosanna is a word that has been transliterated rather than translated. I'm not sure if you uh, uh, spend much time in in Quebec. Quebec is a French-speaking province. And because, because Quebecers are so close to Ontario and to the East Coast, a number of English words, rather than translating the English words, they just get implanted and sort of pronounced with a Quebecois accent. That's called a transliteration. Rather than explaining what the word means or translating the word, you just pronounce the word kind of in your own. Hosanna is like that. Hosanna means save us, Lord. Hosanna is it's actually it's like a it's like a command. It's it's a it's a, a command of desperation. It's really a request asking God, save us. So when they're saying Hosanna, they're crying out, save us. 
And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can guess that the he is the one that they're welcoming with the palm branches, the one who was walking towards Jerusalem. They are welcoming Jesus. That Jesus is the one who has been sent in answer to the request, Lord, save us. But they're, they're singing a song. You see, the book of Psalms is the hymn book for the people of God. And they are singing right now verses from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, which reads like this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's literally what Hosanna means. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hosanna, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So look at that verse on the screen. Now look back at what they say. Hosanna, that means save us, we pray. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then they say, even the king of Israel. But the phrase, even the king of Israel, is not found in verse 26. It's not verse 27. It's not verse 28 either. It's not in Psalm 118. They are adding something to the psalm. Because they are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they're saying that this he that they're talking about is in fact the king. This is a royal procession that is taking place here. What Mary did in private with the Himalayan nard now is happening in public with these people waving palm branches. The declaration that Jesus is king. Now, they had tried to make him king earlier, up, up in Galilee, after Jesus fed 5,000 people. It says in John 6, verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So this is, they tried to make him king before. And so what we would normally expect, based off the way Jesus had responded in the past, is that if Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and as he's walking, he sees the palm branches and the people cheering, and they're saying, here comes the king, here comes the king. What we would expect Jesus to do in that moment, as he's walking towards the city and sees that they want to make him king, we would expect him just to turn around and walk away. Because that's what he had done earlier. But Jesus here acknowledges that they are right in calling him king. Jesus here thinks to do something that I've never thought to do before in my entire life. Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem. He's observing everything that's taking place. And Jesus says to him, what I need right now. What I need in light of this present situation, again, this is something I've never said in my life, but what I need right now in this situation is a donkey. But that's what he does. It says, verse 14, and he found a young donkey and sat on it. Now, the way John describes it is it almost sounds like improvisational. 
But the way it's recorded in the other Gospels, right, there's this whole sort of clandestine thing. And there's this, there's a, there's a, Jesus has already pre-ordered the, the donkey. And then there's a, there's a password clearance uh, that needs to be made in order for them to acquire set donkey. And then, and then it's brought to Jesus and Jesus sits on it. It's all very methodical. It's all very intentional. You see, we serve a God who does everything on purpose. Everything happening in your life right now, how it is happening, why it is happening, when it is happening, it is always on purpose, 100% of the time. Nothing is meaningless, nothing is gratuitous, nothing is pointless, nothing is wasted. So the mode of transportation that Jesus takes into the city of Jerusalem is very, very intentional, and this is why. Verse 15, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You can see that that passage there is in quotation marks, and that's because John is quoting Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 11. Zechariah was a priest and a prophet living around 520 BC. After the exiles to Babylon had returned and rebuilt the walls with Nehemiah in 445 BC, the people were still waiting for this prophecy that Zechariah had made that the, the king was going to Come Even before the city was rebuilt, this prophecy was made that, yes, the city is going to get rebuilt. It's going to happen because the king is going to come to this city. The context of Zechariah 9, Zechariah is talking about all these other nations and what's going to happen to them. And then he zeroes in on God's chosen people. In verses 9 to 11, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's a lot of donkey details, right? Donkeys mentioned twice. Colt and foal, the specific kind of the donkey. Zachariah is like, it's going to get on like Donkey Kong. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, the people of Israel were told not to be on the lookout for the kind of king that the Romans were on the lookout for. The Romans were looking for someone on a horse. The Romans were concerned about someone who was going to form an army and try to take them down. The people of Israel were told, they were programmed by prophecy to watch for the guy on the donkey. To watch for the guy who comes in these three ways. This isn't in your notes, but this is worth writing down. that, That the king was to come in three ways. First of all, he was going to come in a way that's humble. It's The word humble is right there. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, I grew up in Steeltown in Hamilton. I grew up surrounded by more smokestacks than silos. I, I, I've only been to a farm a handful of times. And so 
I had to sort of go to the internet to find how big actually is a donkey compared to a horse. And so this was just a picture that I was able to find to sort of put it in perspective. And so Jesus is sort of choosing like a low ride uh, vehicle here. The the people would have been kind of straining their necks and looking to, to actually to get their eyes on him. He came in a way that was humble. He also came in a way that was peaceful. He didn't come on a war horse. Go back to Zechariah 9, please. It says that he came to speak peace to the nations. He's going he's to cut off the chariot, the war horse, the battle bow. All these things are going to be cut off and he's going to speak peace. So he's going to come in a way that's humble. He's going to come in a way that's peaceful. And then lastly, he's going to come in a way that's global. It says that his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now we're going to get there, aren't we? We're talking about the the welcome and the witness and then the world. His rule is going to be global. So this is how Jesus came. He came very, very intentionally. It, It says that the disciples didn't recognize it at first what was happening that he was fulfilling of Zechariah chapter 9. Here's the truth of the matter. Jesus is king. He always was king and he always will be king. He's not king when we choose to call him king. Jesus was king before the people came came and welcomed him into Jerusalem and said blessed is he. He was king before that. And he's still king when the crowds are yelling crucify him. He always was king. He always will be king. He is king and nothing can change that. It doesn't matter how we feel about him. It doesn't matter what popular opinion says about him. He is king. Now, the people of Israel, sure, they were watching for the guy on the donkey, but still they were expecting that he would, you know, get off the donkey and then get on to a horse. They, they, were, they were still expecting someone to form an army, to put the Romans down. They had this view of how God was going to help them. And it involved overthrowing the Romans. But Jesus knew they had a bigger problem than Rome. Their, their issues went deeper than politics. And Jesus is not just a king... Jesus is the king. And sometimes we can come before the king and treat him like he's a king. Sometimes we can come before Jesus with this narrow little view of how we want him to work. And rather than acknowledging and bowing before him as king and saying, I want to do your will, we are continually asking Jesus to do our will. Jesus, help me pass this test. Jesus, save my marriage. Jesus, help me overcome this addiction. Jesus, cure me of this loneliness or this depression. Listen, Jesus is capable of doing all of those things. But if all you're asking him to do is help you out with your stuff, that doesn't mean he's king. That means you're king or queen. He's not here simply to help us. He's not here for us. We are here for him. He is king. 
And just like the people of Israel had these expectations for what Jesus was supposed to do for them, we can have expectations of what we want him to do for us. So what are you expecting him to do? And have you turned the tables and just thought, well, okay, what is he expecting of, of me? Because he's, he's king. So that means that, that his word is, is law. That means that, that, that his word is truth. That means that his plan for my life, he's the king, and so that is the plan. And am I going to live in submission to the king, or am I going to live really as a rebel and not welcome this king as he truly is? So the welcome seems all enthusiastic at this point in time, but... The enthusiasm was not that they wanted to live in utter submission to this king. They were thinking that there was, it was going to play out in a certain way. Jesus did come humble. He did come peaceful. And he did come to go global. But the peace that he came to bring came at a cost, right? He didn't come to get off the donkey to get on a horse. No, he came to get off the donkey to get on a cross. One degree of humility to the next. He kept descending lower and lower and lower. And that's why now we exalt him higher and higher and higher. Because the peace that he made, he purchased for us on the cross. He came to bring peace from sea to sea. He came to speak peace to the nations because not just that the nations are at war with one another, but because the nations, every, every human being on planet earth is hostile towards God, at war with God. And Isaiah 53 says that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That all our rebellion against God, all of our sin, all of our not recognizing God as king and going off and leading and living like we're our own personal monarchy. Jesus went to the cross and suffered and died to pay the penalty, the chastisement that all of us deserve. And that's what brought us peace, so that he could speak peace to the nations. So he is king, and he is the king. He always has been, he always will be. Are you living like he's king of your life right now? Are you trying to get Jesus to do your thing for you? Or are you coming before him and saying, Jesus, what do you want me to do for him? So that's the welcome. These next two are going to come a little uh, faster. The second is the witnesses. Jesus is raised from the dead. The witnesses, Jesus raised the dead. Verse 16 says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and done to him. The disciples didn't get it at first. That shouldn't be surprising, right? Um, that's just kind of the, that's how the New Testament unfolds. Jesus does some things. The disciples are scratching their heads. They don't understand. They ask a follow-up question. Jesus tells a parable or a story to try to explain it. Now they're even more confused. 
I mean, that's just how it works for the disciples. i got to be honest, that's how it works for me. God is doing something, and he's doing it on purpose. The timing is right, and how he's doing it is right, and I don't get it. I, I, I can't piece it together until later. Am I alone up here? Anyone else experience that? We don't always see what God is doing in the moment, do we? But they get it later. It says that after he was glorified, if you keep reading chapter 12, as we'll do as this, as this series unfolds, you're going to see that when it talks about Jesus being glorified, that's not, that's not just describing when he ascends into heaven. No, it's his glorification is actually described in chapter 12 as when he's, when he's crucified, that's when he's glorified. When he's, when he's buried, that's when he's glorified. The resurrection and the ascension is all part of that, but the glory of Jesus is actually revealed in his suffering. But he tells the disciples, doesn't he, all how the Old Testament spoke about him. When we read the the Gospel of John, and we see them pick verses like Zechariah chapter 9, or when we read the, uh, the Apostle Paul, and we see him lift a verse out of, the, out of the Psalms. Sometimes we wonder, how did they know that those verses are there? Well, Jesus told them. In Luke 24, 27, on the road to Emmaus, it says, beginning with Moses and the, all the prophets, Zechariah was a prophet, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, including Zechariah 9. So they eventually figured it out because Jesus taught it to them. So the disciples gained this understanding later, but notice how in verse 17 and verse 18 there's two crowds Verse 17 says, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So there was the crowd, there was the funeral crowd. The crowd that was there when Jesus wept and when Martha ran out to Jesus and then Mary ran out to Jesus and then Jesus went to the tomb and then shouted, Lazarus, come out. And then he came out. That crowd, it says that they were bearing witness. Well, what does it mean to bear witness? It means to tell people what you saw. In, in the court of law, that's the job of a witness. And, uh, to explain. They, they, they witnessed the incident. They saw the crime taking place. And so they bear a witness. And so this Crowd number one in verse 17, the funeral crowd, they were bearing witness about what they had seen God do. Then verse 18, we're introduced to another crowd. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. It's a different crowd. One crowd saw and spoke the other crowd heard and came. And this is what we need to understand. This is the privilege that we need to be reminded of as followers of Jesus Christ. There is no crowd number two unless there's a crowd number one. There is no worship of Jesus. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the king. There's no worship unless there's witnessing. That whole crowd is there because the crowd that was at the funeral did their job. They told, they, and 
for them, it wasn't really a job. I mean, they saw something amazing. And they wanted everyone to know. And when we talk about witnessing at our church, we want everyone in our church to be worshiping Jesus and witnessing about the, the work that Jesus has done. We want people to be boldly telling others what they've seen God do. It starts with your own story. It starts with telling God how he has transformed your life and sharing that with other people. Now, there's all different kinds of ways of being witness. And the important thing about a witness, right, a witness needs to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So one of the ways to really just practice being a witness is just to make sure you tell the truth. You go to work on Monday morning and you say, what did you do this weekend? And going to church should probably be one of the things you list. Maybe your coworkers, your friends, your schoolmates don't know that you're a Christian, don't know that you go to church. So part of being a witness is just, just tell the truth. I went to church. And so for some of us who are living sort of as closet Christians, just tell people you went to church. Then, there's, then you start doing that for a little while. And then you say, you know what? Yeah, I went to church. You know what? You should come too. And it's as simple as that. You give people an invite card. You send them a link on social media saying, yeah, I'd love you for you to come. So there's people who say, yeah, I went to church. That's step one in witnessing. And then step two in witnessing is you should come with me. And then step three is I'll give you some reasons why you should come with me. We're right then and there. You're not inviting someone to come here so I can explain the gospel to them impersonally in front of a hundred other people. No, you then are sharing the gospel with your friends and family and coworkers as a witness. Here's the thing. Witnessing works. It worked right here. The crowd went and bore witness, and then another crowd came. What, could, what would God do? I mean, this place is pretty full, but there's still some empty seats. What would God do in this year if all of us took, took seriously telling the truth and being a witness to fill in these seats? What would be happening in the baptism tank if in our schools, in our universities, if in our neighborhoods, if in our workplaces, we were witnesses? What kind of a crowd could we draw? Not to crowd around us, but to crowd around Jesus. To, so that they could know that he is king. Witnessing works. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John wants you to see that. John started by talking about another John, John the Baptist. And he, it's, he's described as a witness. What did he do? He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then John passed things on to Philip and Andrew. What did Philip and Andrew do? They brought people to Jesus, introducing Peter and Nathaniel. And then you have in John chapter 4, you have the Samaritan woman. She has this encounter to Jesus. What does she do? She says, go and meet the man who told me everything I ever knew. And then the whole village comes out to meet him. And so they are... They are acting as witnesses. The man who had been born blind, he gets dragged before the Pharisees. And he acts as a witness. Witnessing works. Are we doing it? Are we engaging, telling people about who Jesus is? Then look at verse 19. It says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Jot this down thirdly. The world. Jesus can't be stopped. Jesus can't be stopped. 
You see, at this point in time, the people who are welcoming Jesus, remember, they have this very narrow view. They're basically just saying, oh, we vote for Jesus, a Jesus for prime minister, if only we had that opportunity, right? I mean, he's, he, was, he was pretty good with diplomacy, right? He walked into Samaria, and uh, uh, so really a foreign land, a hostile land. He was uh, pretty good in terms of social assistance programs, five loaves, two fish, right? And fed thousands of people. I mean, how about health care, healing the sick, raising the dead? That's pretty good, right? He'd be a pretty good leader. But even on the human level, these Pharisees wanted nothing to do with Jesus. It says, we are gaining nothing. They're, they're exasperated at this point. Here's the reason why they're exasperated. They tried the whole social pressure and ostracization thing back in chapter 9 with the man who had been born blind when they said, anyone who starts talking about Jesus, they're kicked out of the synagogue. That didn't work. Then look back at John eleven fifty seven, just in the earlier chapter. It says, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So they start spreading the word. Hey, hey, heads up. You see Jesus, you come tell us. You know where Jesus is. If you happen to know where he's going or when he's on his way, you let us know, okay? You let us know. Because we're in charge here. We're the rulers. So you let us know when he's coming. So Jesus is coming. Does anyone let them know? No, the... They don't go running to the Pharisees to say he's coming. No, they run to go and meet him. The whole thing is backfiring on them. They, they, they sense that their power and their authority is being taken from them. They say, we, we, you gain nothing. This isn't working. We've tried everything we can to try to oppose Jesus. Here's the thing. When they say the world has gone after him. Jesus can't be stopped. He can't be stopped. This is another one of those instances, like Caiaphas saying, you know, one man must die for the nation. He spoke what was true, but he didn't mean it that way. In the same way, they're saying the world has gone after him. They're kind of exaggerating, but it's actually true. I don't want to take away from the next message, but just look at verse 20 and 21 of what follows. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now Greeks here doesn't mean that they were necessarily identified as actually being from Greece. It doesn't mean that they, you know, they had like some souvlaki and some yogurt and they're like, those are Greek guys. Uh, Greek, uh, it was sort of used as a synonym of, of Gentile. It just meant that non-Jewish people, people from the outside world. And it's not a coincidence that at this very moment when Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king, and we know ultimately he's going to be rejected as king, but we don't make Jesus king based off our opinion. He is king. He always was king. And he always will be king. But he's not just king of Jerusalem. He's not just the king of Israel. He's king of the world. 
and he can't be stopped. The Pharisees have tried everything they can do to try to stop him. They will even succeed in crucifying him, but he will not be stopped. He's king. He wins. And maybe you're here today and you've been rebelling against his kingship. You've got a family member that loves Jesus. You've got maybe a son or a daughter that loves Jesus or a friend that keeps telling you to come to church and you're just, you're just trying to get Jesus out of your life. He can't be stopped. I mean, even look at the history of Christianity across the world. The places where, even right now, if you go to websites like Voice of the Martyrs or, or Open Doors, and you look at the places where persecution is the most intense, that happens to be the place where the gospel is flourishing. The more you try to suppress Christianity, the more that it flourishes. So it, it doesn't matter what a communist dictator tries to do. It doesn't matter what Hindu nationalists try to do. It doesn't matter what intellectual or cultural or political elites try to do or Muslim extremists try to do. No matter where you try to push Jesus down, he pushes back. And he can't be stopped. He's king. And he's king of the world. And listen, he came in this moment and he's coming to you right now riding on a donkey. He's coming in peace. He's saying, let me take the punishment for you. I've come to spread peace from sea to sea. I've come to bring peace in your life, peace between you and God, the forgiveness of your sins. Right now, in this story, and right now, in this moment, he's coming to you on a donkey. He's coming to you in peace. But he's coming again and he's not coming on a donkey. He's coming again on a white war horse. Revelation, amen. <laughs> Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. The same John who saw and wrote about Jesus coming on a donkey saw Jesus in this way. He says, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The time for peace will come to an end. It says his eyes are like a flame of fire and his head are, on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh... He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is king, he was king, he always will be king. He was king when he was riding on a donkey, he will be king when he's riding on a white horse. Will you acknowledge him now? Acknowledge him now as king. He's coming. That winepress, fury, wrath, those are not pleasant imageries. But the wrath has already been paid. 
And so will you bow before the king, the one who came in peace before it's too late? And will we who have recognized him as king, will we be faithful in then being witnesses so that we can reach the world? So that they could know that he is king as well. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you by your spirit asking for your help to acknowledge you in this moment as King of kings and Lord of lords, God. God, forgive us for the times where we try to get you to do our thing rather than bowing before you and asking you, Lord. Not that you would work and act for us, but that we would work and act for you. And so, God, we pray that you would draw us close to you, Lord. I pray that even now that this place would erupt in worship and praise for you, that you are the king. No one can rival you. No one can stand against you. No one can stop you, Lord. And God, help us to to be witnesses in this world of your kingship. And help us, God, to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.